I am Dr. Marnie Peterson, the Outreach Coordinator for the project, which was created by the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. I am pleased to be hosting Professor Karen Thursky. She has many current roles and has also been a stewardship physician for over 20 years. Her current roles include the Director of the National Center for Antimicrobial Stewardship, Deputy Head of Infectious Diseases at the Peter McCollum Cancer Center, Director of the Guidance Group at the Royal Melbourne Hospital, one of the Chief Investigators of the National Center for Infectious Infections and Cancer, and a Professor Principal Fellow in the Department of Medicine, Sir Peter McCollum Department of Oncology, and the Do Doherty Institute at the University of Melbourne in Australia. So a lot of experience in many different roles. What we'll be discussing today is a very important manuscript that Dr. Thursky authored recently in BMJ Open Quality. And for those listeners that don't um, aren't familiar with the journal, I just wanted to give them a bit of background. Um, the BMJ Open Quality Journal is an expanded and rebranded version of BMJ Quality Improvement Reports, and this journal is dedicated to publishing high-quality, peer-reviewed healthcare improvement work which is exactly what this manuscript is about. So in the manuscript, Dr. Thursky described the implementation of a hospital-wide sepsis clinical pathway in a cancer hospital. That cancer hospital is the Peter McCollum Cancer Center, which includes 100 inpatient bed, tertiary cancer hospital, four wards, ambulatory areas, and outpatient clinics. So a very uh, broad scope of patient care. She will be describing the process that she and her team undertook to create this hospital-wide sepsis clinical pathway and describe the remarkable outcomes of this study. So, Professor Thursky, thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Mandy. So to begin our discussion, I just thought we'd start with some background on the important topic. And as you read through the manuscript, you note that infection and sepsis are common problems in cancer management. However, most of the guidelines that are available focus on neutropenic fever. So I'd like you, if you could just describe to us why your group chose to focus on sepsis in cancer patients versus simply focusing on neutropenic fever. It was, an, it was a long process, actually, because we had initial grant funding to develop a, um, a national consensus guideline for the management of neutropenic fever. That was the original um, intent. And during that process, it was, uh, uh, we understood that undertaking gap analysis of these um, neutropenic fever guidelines across my state in Victoria and, and nationally, we recognised that there were significant gaps in neutropenic fever guidelines. And in fact, very few of the guidelines actually addressed sepsis per se. One of the reasons um, is that the neutropenic fever definition requires a presence of fever and for those of you who understand about sepsis, we also know that severe sepsis um, may not manifest a fever in up to 30% of, of severe sepsis cases and so there was an immediate um, risk here. I had been looking at implementing a low-risk neutropenic fever pathway, but we needed to make sure that we were not going to be causing unintended harm. And so I pivoted my um, interest into um, sepsis, addressing the correct um, management of sepsis rather than focusing on low-risk neutropenic fever. During that process, while we looked at the processes in the hospital, um, we could see that um, 
really the cancer journey is very interesting for patients and while we are a dedicated cancer hospital we also knew that patients can um, with cancer can um, present at many points across the hospital so our hospital in particular did not have an emergency department which meant that many patients would be presenting to ambulatory care to their radiation outpatient appointments with sepsis they could they could present and in the in the chemotherapy day unit in the apheresis unit there were often direct admissions where they were um, had sepsis which was unrecognized and so it was fairly obvious from early on that this was a broad problem which was not being addressed in a in a in a systematic way um, I think this is a problem in in many hospitals where cancer patients are being looked after, not just by the oncologist, by other units. So they may be um, having radiotherapy, surgery, uh, interventional diagnostic procedures. Um, and so all cancer patients are at risk. You know, we know that up to 45% of patients um, can have infections. Some, some groups have very high rates of infections. We all know the hematology patients. Do. Um, but equally well um, surgical patients and radiation oncology patients and you can see from the demographics of the patients that were entered into the pathway that you know quite a substantial proportion were not the traditional groups that people recognize. Because of that uh, understanding of that they could present in many different entrance as they enter into the hospital or at different points within their hospitalization is that why you decided to to focus this as, or not focus this, but really implement this as a hospital-wide uh, pathway? Yes, that was a primary reason. Um, but also in recognising, and, and I think the readers should spend some time reading the supplementary material, which is really um, how we undertook the process mapping of what happens to patients and, and this is I think the first step for any implementation of the clinical pathway to actually understand what are the structural barriers um, and the process barriers for patients being recognised. So you can't, I, I think it's um, short-sighted to um, address the clinical pathway the sepsis for just for the ED or just for the ICU because patients transition up into the hospital Miss sepsis is a real issue in the emergency department and so therefore you need to be thinking whole of hospital up front. So, um, and that is important. So the, just to give the listeners a brief overview of the design of the study, there were several components to, to the study design and some of them were um, based, you know, developing the, a sepsis working party. So I'd like you to just describe how you formed that, who were the members of that team, because I think that that also is helped in the success of the implementation of the program. Yes, yeah, so this, um, this pro project was really driven by the Infectious Diseases Service and the Antimicrobial Stewardship Service. And we had a, already a strong working relationship across the hospital and it was not difficult to identify clinical champions who believed that sepsis was an issue. Um, and I think when you, work, when you are developing a working party, um, it is quite different to a committee. A working party needs to have members that are going to be active participants. And so that was my primary requisite. If you were going to, if you were going to be on the working party, you needed to be able to work for the project. 
we had um, a number of members. We had um, either nurse unit managers who were, who were very passionate about the project or senior nurses, particularly nurses who were experts in clinical education. We had ICU liaison um, nurse um, nursing, and she was actually one of the key project um, leads. Uh, our infectious diseases fellow, who was able to be a link to the other medical staff. Uh, ICU physician, who was uh, invited as required. Uh, we had a, uh, a senior pharmacist, who was an antimicrobial stewardship pharmacist, who was um, critical to ensure that the um, changes are made in terms of availability of septic antibiotics across the hospital. Um, and we had various members come and go as required, but the core group really were, um, I would say, the, the senior nurse, pharmacists and the ID and the ID stewardship team. These, um, the Septus Party, as I said, um, were directly supported and con contributed to the process at mapping and the gap analysis. So they were to come back, we were to collate that information and that then gave us a clear stepwise process as to how we were going to address um, structural barriers to effective care. And I'll give you one good example. It's difficult to initiate um, the manager and asepsis if the patient doesn't have a cannula. In some clinical areas like the haematology ward, there was a very high rate of um, nurses who are able to cannulate, but this was quite different, for example, in the radiotherapy ward where really there was only one or two enough, often that depended on their shift times. So one of the core requirements to, to progress to a whole of hospital approach was to ensure that there was cannulation training for the nurses. A second um, structural barrier was the very significant knowledge gap and um, around the management of intravenous fluids. Um, traditionally, many nurses were um, re um, were running fluids through the pumps at 999 um, mils per hour, which is not a rapid fluid bolus. So teaching um, both medical and nursing staff the importance of a rapid fluid bolus and using rapid infusers and making sure that those rapid infusers were available across the ward was also another um, clear structural um, measure that needed to be fixed. There were much more significant issues in relation to um, recognition of sepsis and the, the readers who have followed the story of sepsis recognition, this pathway was implemented in 2013 where the uh, um, uh, SERS-based definition was still in use. Um, and we had a consensus approach within the um, Sepsis Working Party to ensure that the definition first and foremost ensured that the patient had to have a suspected or known infection, um, the presence of two or more first criteria and or the presence of hypotension. Um, obviously the presence of hypotension is clearly a marker for more severe sepsis. Um, this process of establishing the, the chosen sepsis criteria is um, really very important and it needs a, a strong consensus. Well, and you speak in the, in the manuscript about how the nursing staff was really important here and where key drivers of the program. 
not a, you know is an implementation in the working party were they also some of the uh, basically first line healthcare providers that were assessing uh and following the criteria for whether the patient had sepsis or not and like you said you went through education and training such that they could complete the cannulation, um, draw the blood samples that were necessary, and, and give the bolus. So it seems that they were very, very important to the implementation. Marnie, I believe that the nursing staff are conductors of patient care. They are there at the front line with the patients day and night. They are hugely underutilised in many of the interventions that we need to do for antimicrobial stewardship and the response by the nursing staff to have the opportunity to be able to um, uh, essentially to initiate the pathway um, and to ensure that all the, um, the bundle elements are completed in a timely fashion uh, was really, I think, what um, has made the success and has also driven the sustainability of the pathway. Mm, yeah. So in essence, the nurses were, would um, uh, understand or, or identify a patient with sepsis or, or possible sepsis. Um, they use the ISPAR criteria to hand over in a meaningful way to the, to the medical officer that the patient needed review within 30 minutes. They cannulated the patients, took the venous blood gases and the blood cultures they did not um, um, give antibiotics or intravenous fluids, but that was done by the medical staff. But it meant that it hugely improved timeliness of both, um, particularly for intravenous antibiotic and really halved the time. Um, and uh, this, um, and the, I guess the second thing to say is the readers will have access to all three versions of the pathway, including the pathway which is currently in use at Peter McCallum and at Royal Melbourne Hospital. Both hospitals are next to each other now. And the readers will see that um, uh, there, we have also included the empiric antibiotic guideline recommendations. The feedback from the nursing staff was that for the first time, they could understand which were the right antibiotics the patient should be getting. It took away, um, it, <clears throat> it democratised the decision making and they were able to say things like, look, this patient's really unwell, I think we should give them a stat dose of gentamicin or vancomycin, not just PIPTAS. Um, and later on when we had more broader empiric guidelines, they were, they were really very comfortable in engaging in conversations. And the, the other thing to say, um, Mani, is that in specialist units like cancer wards or cancer hospitals, they generally have rotational junior medical staff from the from the other tertiary institutions or other hospitals. Not constant. Mm -hmm. Nursing staff are. So having a clinical pathway in the hospital so that there's always visiting and rotational senior and junior medical officers um, means that there is a, a, a much greater likelihood that there is going to be standardisation of care um, and to ensure that the patient gets the right treatment at the right time. That's a very good point. Uh, so before we get into, I know we want to get into the results of this, um, just one thing about the research setup that I thought we wanted to highlight was that you had some different time periods that you assessed. 
the program, a mm -hmm. pre-implementation and post, you know, basically while in, during mm -hmm. implementation mm -hmm. and then this follow-up, which allowed you, this is all within the manuscript and allows you then to assess sustainability. But I thought what was interesting is that you studied it within the same time period year over year, um, which I think is always a in in stewardship trying to understand your outcomes of your programs, how important it is to study it basically within similar windows, pre versus post of time. Um, so I thought that was an interesting, I believe it was over, uh, was it three months? April to December. It was April to December for the, the pre and the post. That's yeah. right, Mani. I mean, I think you need to, we need to remember the, the winter period. Um, and the, the increased presentations with viral illness and, and um, respiratory illness and I think that was part of the reason. For all of us who do these projects, the time periods often rely on the resources and, and being pragmatic um, and what we can achieve. And so I always say that for, it, it, it is hard to get resources to do um, outcome um, outcome. Um, evaluation of all our projects it should be part and parcel of what we do in stewardship. But um, I had the opportunity to, to harness a, a medical registrar for the historical. We had a project team for the post implementation. And then in the second cohort, this again was purely pragmatic because I had two fantastic final year medical students on rotation who were able to um, retrospectively look at, a, at the 12 month. Um, 12-month cohort of patients in 2014. This is purely, it's purely pragmatic and, and not necessarily pre-planned. Okay. I think if, um, if it, and that's the reality, that's the reality of what we do. Um, for um, readers who are planning to do this project using the sort of PDSA type methodology, you can, um, it is nice to look at cycles. In, in a sense, I presented as that in the manuscript. Um, but generally what we expect is that you do multiple cycles of improvement to implement, you know, implement change, implement measure, for example. Um, and, it, and it has sort of turned out like that, but I, I did have the advantage of having two very efficient medical students who could measure the, the sustained um, impact of the pathway. And in fact, um, the findings of, of this um, the findings of a pathway implementation were exactly replicated when we moved this clinical pathway into a general hospital. So it was moved from this cancer hospital into the Royal Melbourne Hospital, which is a large general hospital, which did have a bone marrow transplant ward and a leukaemia um, cohort of patients that implemented it first. Um, and again, what, highlight, what it highlighted to me was the rapid adoption once you actually engage nursing staff in, in the pathway implementation. Um, but yes, kind of going back to the issue around data and data collection, it is time consuming. You need to, I, I always say, and, and in my statewide implementation process now, I, I recommend to harness the um, nursing students, medical students, pharmacy students, or, or training training fellows of each of those to to help with data collection. So let's let's just get into some of the key key results here related to um, you 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 can you looked at and analyzed the, the time to the antibiotic being administered, 
We'll also talk about uh, the stewardship components of appropriate antibiotics and how some of the, the usage changed. Um, of these, you can maybe highlight that. Your, your rates then of, of those individuals that had an ICU admission and overall, remarkably, the sepsis-related mortality that was reduced. So those are some of the key clinical and, and patient-related endpoints. In addition to this, you did a cost analysis, so maybe you can highlight a little bit of that uh, as well. Yes, so I wanted to focus in on thinking primarily about which are the process measures and which are the outcome measures. Um, so I think key process measures for um, uh, sepsis pathways is obviously to make sure that the core bundle components are actually completed. So, for example, you know, two sets of blood cultures prior to antibiotics, um, doing a doing a venous blood lactate, um, using uh, fluid bolus if required, and then time to antibiotics. Um, these are and and then of course appropriate of antibiotics. We had a well-established stewardship program already in the hospital. Um, we had existing uh, approvals and restrictions program, post-prescription review. Um, and an antimicrobial physician, we had a baseline appropriateness of, or that was already quite high compared to international standards for antimicrobial use. Nevertheless, there were significant improvements even with the, once the pathway was in place. Um, once those bundle components, um, you know, once you have the process measures in place, it's not difficult to see that there is going to be a substantial impact on patient outcomes. Um, of course, um, compliance is not 100%, and if you look at the, if you look at um, some elements like um, two sets of blood cultures prior to antibiotics, it did, did jump from 50 to 74%, um, but certainly didn't go to 100%. And I think it reflects the real life, um, the real life issues um, for for patient management in hospitals. What was very interesting, I think, was the complete lack of recognition of the importance of lactate. Um, and you can see that the, only in, in the pre-implementation, albeit a smaller cohort, you know, under 20% of patients were having lactate routinely done, uh, which jumped to 75%. Um, this is, this is a very powerful finding because this was a single, um, test result which really changed the opinions of senior clinicians and even nurses because you often have a quite well patient who looks well perfused, um, who who came back with a lactate of four or five and would deteriorate rapidly later and end up in ICU. This really um, stopped. And the other thing was that associating lactate with hyperperfusion and the requirement of fluid, um, fluid management um, and early referral to ICU, which I did want to stress, where really it was really not about um, maintaining existing practices where um, patients are often receiving litres of fluid on the ward before getting up to ICU. So reinforcing that, you know, uh, two boluses and then ICU review and up to ICU was actually very important. So um, it's, it's, I wasn't very surprised to see that there was a significant fall in, in ICU admission, that the ICU admissions themselves were shorter, the significant fall in IDATRAP requirements from 30% to 8% in the pre and post and, uh, and uh, in, the, in the second cohort again, um, uh, patients, you know, the requirements of IDATRAP significantly fell. Um, 
what that means if you um, if the, the major drivers of, of cost of care in our hospitals and, and I suspect it's probably similar in the United in, in North America, the major drivers of cost of care are um, number of days in the hospital and ICU admission. So once you see <clears throat> a reduction in ICU admission and, and a reduction in length of stay, you do see quite a substantial um, fall in cost. Um, the important thing to remember too, and for those of you who are going to be implementing, you need to look at length of stay after the onset of sepsis. Patients with cancer admitted may have various interventions done before they get sepsis, so it is important to look at the time of onset of sepsis length of stay uh, to discharge um, as, a, as opposed to full length of stay. You can look at both and they will both be reduced, but we saw that um, very significantly. Um, so some of the, for the readers that, you know, it was really quite profound that in haematology patients, over $8,000 was saved per patient on the pathway. In our hospital, the surgical, the type of surgeries are really very complex, particularly um, with um, colorectal surgery and the cost savings were even greater in those patients. Um, you know, it's a wide confidence interval, but um, around about 30000 per um, surgical patient put on the pathway. Um, we are um, doing a much more complex um, incremental cost effectiveness ratio evaluation at the moment, which, which will be published shortly, and that will include both short-term cost impact as well as long-term cost impact. Um, I think for, for those of us doing quality um, implementation programs, the, the role of um, looking at um, cost, cost effectiveness is becoming increasingly important. And um, Marnie, I know that you were interested to know whether hospital administrators were happy with these findings, and yes, they were. Um, but I think we're also in a uh, healthcare funding environment where hospital administrators don't always necessarily want to fund quality programs because they don't make money for the hospital. Nevertheless, the, the impact of the pathway was very profound and we were able to drive the business case to have um, a new role. And uh, this is a new role which um, we have been developing at Peter Mac, which is a, a sepsis and infectious diseases nurse liaison role. Um, the nurse liaison role is, is fantastic. She um, reviews patients on the sepsis pathway, um, uh, she will undertake um, reviews of their microbiology and, and opportunities for oral switch. She uh, recruits patients with low-risk neutropenic fever. Um, she undertakes and supports our stewardship rounds and she also has a role in allergy delabeling. So the direct result of this pathway was actually to, to create a new um, a role development for nurse practitioner in this space. Oh, that's excellent. And that speaks to then being able to have the sustainability and increase the educational efforts. Uh, so, fortunately, we're almost out of time here. So, I just, um, you've given us many different um, uh, tools and thoughts and knowledge as you've implemented this pathway. I just wondered if there's any other recommendations that you might have to the listeners that may want to implement a similar path, pathway in their health 
care settings. Any any takeaways? That I think. Mind? Well, I do. I uh, I did want to hone in a little bit on the role of antimicrobial stewardship here, and um, the the pathway clearly outlines the impact on antimicrobial use. Um, which was very profound. So um, overuse of um, carbapenems and vancomycin uh, were uh, not uncommon and, and uh, is not uncommon in many hospitals. And um, so the impact of having a clinical pathway where it's direct, where you are directing empiric therapy and, and um, de-emphasising the role of the of, um, glycopeptides and carbapenems up front um, led to very significant and sustained reduction. So if you are looking at an intervention that will actually improve the quality and appropriateness of antimicrobial use, sepsis pathways are it. It is what the patient, you know, gets initiated on. Um, later on in the, in the second and third versions, you can see how we have, um, implemented a broader IMPRI guideline and that then it continued to improve the quality of antimicrobial use. So I strongly believe that antimicrobial stewardship um, teams, pro programs should be um, looking at implementing sepsis pathways as a core element of their program. That's excellent. That's an excellent takeaway and, and linking the stewardship within or combining it within the pathway to continue to drive these these fantastic uh, results that you're having in a sustainable way. Well, with that, I, I'm, I'm going to close and just thank you, Karen, for your time today. And what a fantastic paper, and I hope our readers take some time to, to read through it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye.